Welcome back to Orthodox.Faith. This is John Harmon. And this is Ron Bentley. In this episode, we conclude our series on 1 John. So one last time, let's take a minute to remind us of the themes that we've been following throughout the book. First, at the heart of the Christian message is a story about God, the one who created the world, God working directly in this physical world that we see, hear, and feel. God specifically worked through the person, Jesus Christ, a real, live, physical human being who was also Son of God in a profound, almost mysterious way. We've been calling this a concrete gospel, a message that maintains that God created the world and created it good without denying or endorsing the evil that envelops it. Second, we've been tracking a heavy dose of dualism in John's letter. He readily draws on stark metaphors to describe the early Christian situation, light and dark, life and death, and even sons of God and sons of the devil. He is addressing a community that seems to be at odds with everyone around them, and that's reflected in his language throughout the letter. Third, there's a strong emphasis on love throughout the book. God loves us, and God expressed that love in the work he did through Jesus Christ. We, in turn, love God and those around us. This is the message everyone remembers from the book, and it's the popular message to emphasize. We spent a good deal of time addressing what John means by this love in our last episode. Fourth and finally, the author of 1 John emphasizes over and over how important it is that we believe the right things, specifically that we acknowledge what God has done in Jesus Christ, and that we see that belief bear fruit in a life where we do the right things as well. In this last episode, we cover the last and fifth chapter of 1 John, and here the theme of what we believe and do takes center stage. This chapter contains some of the most difficult passages in the letter. For one thing, in places, it's actually hard to tell exactly what John is trying to say. But in others, the message is perfectly clear. It's just not a message modern audiences are particularly keen to hear. That's hard, but we need to see it to the end. John said what we wanted to hear with the words, God is love. Now let's go see what John says that we might not want to hear. The first five verses of chapter five sound on the surface to be a bit circular. They begin and end in the same place. First, he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That's how it starts. Then he says, Who is it that conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's how it ends. Notice the two titles here. They're essentially synonymous. At the beginning, Jesus is Christ, and at the end there, Jesus is Son of God. John, I believe there's a good reason in the history of Israel to tie those two titles together. In particular, to my mind, I'm seeing Psalm 2. Am I headed down the right road here? That's a good example, actually. It was not uncommon in the ancient Near East to see the title Son of God or Son of a particular God in an ancient pantheon to be applied to a human king. Okay. Israel participated in that tradition, and we see it come through in a place like Psalm 2. However, there's no doubt at all that Psalm 2 was also pointing to more than an ordinary royal individual. It was clearly understood messianically. That means it was a psalm that pointed to the Christ, or the Messiah in Hebrew. Son of God and Christ 
came together in Israel's history and theology. When we see these used in the way that John writes here, we just can't help but come face to face with the fact that none of it makes any sense outside of the story that the Old Testament tells. I would expect you to say no less. <laughs> what John writes here is firmly and unmistakably rooted there. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheer that one on, Ron. <laughs> Even as he opens with believing that Jesus is the Christ, though, John immediately ties it to being born of God. Those who believe Jesus is the Christ are the ones who are born of God. On one hand, this is no surprise to us. We now know to expect this in the Johannine literature. However, I want to be clear about what John is trying to say here. I think we sometimes try to soften the blow. John is saying something deeply offensive to our modern secular way of thinking. Yeah. First, the background. John writes in a context where he assumes God created the world around us and created us. We and our world rightly belong to God. Nevertheless, this basic assertion has been widely rejected by most people, by the world, to use John's terminology. It's been rejected by the majority of the population that worship Greek and Roman gods and goddesses and don't acknowledge their creator. But it's also been rejected by those in the local Jewish populations who refuse to acknowledge what God just did in Jesus Christ. In essence, God's world has become enemy-occupied territory. If we want to side with the God who created us, God who knows what's best for us, then we have to recognize what he's done, specifically the work in Jesus Christ. Then and only then do we become children of God. We are literally born of God when we make that acknowledgement. Until then, as far as John is concerned, we are at odds with God. At this point in chapter 5, though, Ron, John extends the metaphor, doesn't he, about being children of God. He now plays out the significance of that status in the way we treat others, as we've just talked about. Right. We become children by acknowledging God's work in Jesus Christ. But once we do that, we find ourselves in a family. We love our newfound parent, if you will, but we also love the other children. How could we do otherwise? The implication is clear. Other believers, the others around us who have acknowledged God's work in Jesus Christ, are effectively our brothers and sisters in this new family, and true children of God will treat them as such. Again, it's easy to miss the disturbing ramifications of this. This is no feel-good human family or brotherhood of all mankind. The children of God John describes are specifically the community of those who believe Jesus is the Christ sent by God, creator and rightful ruler of the world we live in. To further tie it all together, John considers obeying God as synonymous with loving God, therefore, ultimately, with loving those around us. Uh, given the context, again, how could it be otherwise? If we've sided with God against the occupying forces in the world around us, why would we do anything other than what God asks of us? Occupying forces in the world around us is a really good way to put that because it helps to make sense of the language that concludes this passage. John now ties our faith, our love, and our obedience to conquering the world. If it's not perfectly clear how deeply offensive this is to our modern <laughs> sensibilities by now, we're not hearing it at all like a non-Christian might hear it. Speaking for Christians, John is saying fairly plainly, all those people who don't agree with us, they've chosen to side against God. They are the occupied enemy territory. They live in a world God must ultimately reconquer. Now, to be very clear, John is dealing in metaphors here. He doesn't even remotely mean pick up swords and fight back. Again, 
don't forget the context. He's speaking to a persecuted minority, a community at odds with multiple different segments of the population, outnumbered by all of them, and effectively powerless in any way the others would consider significant. Now, having said something about the offensiveness of this, I want to take an aside here, John, and talk about possibly at least two different ways this letter could be offensive. Okay. One has to do with this logic of the letter. And we've just been talking about where only believers are children of God. Our modern sensibilities react to that. And so yes. the logic itself is offensive. But I do want to note that on another level, it's just the rhetoric that bothers us. And John, when I say that, I'm thinking about what you said in Joshua, where the rhetoric of the time was when you won a victory, you completely destroyed your opponent. That's just the (laughs) the way you said it. Uh, John here in this letter is also not operating in a world that follows 21st century rules of being nice. So I'm thinking there, the language that calls out others is liars that might fall into this category. So do, do be aware that there are levels of offensiveness here as you read through it. <laughs> uh-huh. But in some profound sense, those of us who side with God must overcome or conquer the world around us that is at odds with God. And how do we do that? As far as John is concerned, it starts with acknowledging what God has done in Jesus Christ, loving God, loving those around us, and then obeying what God commands. The next section starts in verse 6 with a baffling statement. He says, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and the blood. (laughs) What is going on here? (laughs) John, this is one of those places where it is hard to say with certainty what John was talking about. I've seen the suggestion that this refers to Jesus' baptism, the water, where the voice of God speaks from heaven, and then Jesus' crucifixion, the blood, and, and then ultimately the resurrection there. John does argue a verse or two later that God's testimony is greater than a human's testimony. I think that supports identifying baptism and crucifixion as water and the blood because those are two places in the gospel accounts where God is clearly at work doing something humans themselves cannot do. Hmm. What is much clearer, though, is what John says immediately following this. Specifically, the Spirit is the one that testifies for the Spirit is truth. Now we're back to a clear, common Joannine theme. We already spent time with this in an earlier episode. We get hints of this in Jesus' final monologue in the Gospel of John, where Jesus promises to send the paraclete or comforter. In those final chapters, it's specifically the role of the Holy Spirit to lead the disciples to truth. So check out the Gospel of John chapter 16 if you want to see exactly how Jesus described that. But we've also seen this same assertion multiple times here in 1 John. We got our first hints in chapter 2, where John talked about the anointing available to believers. And we got it again in chapter 4, where the spirit of truth helps identify false prophets. Here, though, it is very clearly the Holy Spirit that plays a crucial role in convincing people of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And once again, as we continue, we find John calling out liars (laughs) without any hesitation. Right. But by now, John's perspective is crystal clear. God has effectively reclaimed us through the work in Jesus Christ. God has told us plainly what God is doing. It was clear at Jesus' baptism. It was clear at the resurrection. The Holy Spirit continues to say it plainly, at least as far as John is concerned. If we refuse to accept that, we're doing nothing more or less than calling God a liar. John just 
turns it back around. If you're calling the author of truth a liar, (laughs) you really need to stop that and ask what you're really representing. As if all this weren't uncomfortable enough, John puts a further point on it at the end of this section. The great reward that God makes available because of Jesus Christ is eternal life. We could spend a lot of time on what that means, but let it be enough right now to say eternal life not only means perpetual existence beyond this life, but also a more rewarding and fulfilling life now. In any case, that eternal life is available to those who have the Son. In other words, to those who accept what God has done in Jesus Christ. Refuse to accept that, and you don't have that life. John makes that explicit. (laughs) Ron, there's a lot that's been uncomfortable up to now. (laughs) Let's pause to be clear about what we're trying to say. This letter gives us the popular, well-known passages like, God is love, perfect love casts out fear, and greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And we love those passages. We're excited to repeat those. They're also very manipulable into things that aren't actually being said in the letter. We love the soundbiteness of those little (laughs) quotable quips, don't we? But we misunderstand those pieces of the letter if we don't read all of them against the backdrop of the text as a whole. The simple fact is, This letter relentlessly demands that we acknowledge what God has done in Jesus Christ. This letter is not a mushy treatise on love and nothing else. That is, it's not just a blank canvas for us to fill in with whatever we decide we think love should be, what it should look like, and what human ideologies it must align with in order to be genuine. Love in this letter has a very specific context, and that context is is this acknowledgement of what God has done in Christ. We have to leave those dots connected, or we're simply reinventing John's letter to suit ourselves. Mm. Ron, we've seen this played out in real life when the definition of love gets hijacked to suit an agenda that has nothing to do with the love of the Bible, but Mm. instead everything to do with using the idea of love to manipulate people into getting on board with ideologies that are foreign to Scripture altogether. It's often presented as improving on the biblical witness (laughs) (laughs) or updating the, quote, archaic or obsolete worldview of the Bible. The damage and the havoc that that can wreak in a church is incalculable. But I want to be careful not to dwell disproportionately on how this letter gets misused, because (laughs) the underlying news here in what the letter is saying is good. There's something positive and joyful that is firmly rooted in reality, in what the first Christians saw and heard. Ron, to circle back to the opening of the letter. John and I recognize this tour through First John has not been as lighthearted as some of the other things we've done, <laughs> even when we were dealing with fairly weighty topics. To be fair, the author of this letter is not happy. I think I may have said spitting mad when we started. Ah, yes. And John, you and I have both watched this letter get twisted out of its context to say things the author would have vigorously opposed. So to be clear, we're not happy either. (laughs) As they used to say in the online gaming world, we might both be a bit salty about this. (laughs) Or if you'll allow me to switch metaphors, a tour through this letter tends to aggravate old wounds. (laughs) 
but in a more positive direction as we transition into the closing portion of the letter in verse 13. The author reminds his readers that he writes to those who believe precisely so that they will know that they have eternal life. It's easy for that phrase, eternal life, to slip by us. As we suggested earlier, it means more than just living forever. It means living now as completely as we should, recognizing how much God has done for us. We're not untouched by evil, but we are in a very real sense coming back to life, moving further away from the living death that characterized our lives before God intervened, and moving directly towards the exciting, rewarding, genuine life that is now available because of what God did in Jesus Christ. In fact, John immediately follows that by insisting we can ask God for anything and God will provide. There is the caveat, if you want to call it that, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, John says. But again, if we are genuinely children of God, if we've sided with God, why would we ask anything that God doesn't want? Right. And since he's on this topic of life, John cannot help but address the topic of sin, of doing things wrong. He's got to do it one more time. So he says, if you see your brother or your sister committing what is not a mortal sin, you will ask and God will give life to such a one. We're back to that ongoing theme where we strike a balance. We learn in chapter one that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and clean us. We learn elsewhere that if we continue to sin, we cannot claim to have a relationship with the Father. The idea clearly seems to be that Christians should not sin. He says, we know that those who are born of God do not sin. In fact, they're supposed to have access to a protection that prevents this. But John acknowledges that this happens, and there is a way to resolve it. However, he does talk about mortal sin, yeah. something that is not so easily resolved. Yeah. Ron, do we have any idea what he's talking about here? At first glance, John, I want to say no, I don't think we do. John doesn't tell us. We might be tempted to connect this to the unforgivable sin that gets mentioned in the Gospel of Mark. It's chapter 3 for those who want to go look it up. But it's not clear there's a connection or that if we do make that connection that it sheds any light. Uh, those statements in Mark 3 are a bit of a mystery themselves, although you'll certainly find those who are happy to tell you exactly what they think that means. <laughs> Yes. However, there is one connection that mortal sin, that phrase, definitely suggests. John has started this section talking about eternal life, something we look forward to, and yet something we begin to experience right now. All sin runs counter to that life. But it would seem that John is worried about certain kinds of sins that are more deadly, more contrary to life than others. And John, you know, as I think about this, if I had to speculate, and this is very much speculation, I guess that this mortal sin has to do with the denying that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah that John mentioned earlier in the letter. Given everything else we've heard in this letter, given the way John is treating those who have left the community, uh, he's treating them in many ways as hopeless, that might best explain what he has in mind here. But again, I wouldn't hang too much on that. That's speculation there. It will come as a surprise to no one, though, that I want to just take a moment to point out how apparently Trinitarian the penultimate verse of this letter is. There would seem to be an emphatic endorsement of the deity of Jesus Christ in verse 20. He is the true 
God and eternal life. <laughs> no surprise there, Ron, not from John and not to hear you put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> but what might be a surprise is the last verse itself. Yeah. The conclusion is abrupt, and it seems to be disconnected from anything that went before. John says, little children, keep yourself from idols. <laughs> John, and that just comes out of the blue. I read it this way. Oh, by the way, idolatry would be the opposite of everything I've just admonished you to do. It's perfectly consistent with all the Old Testament connections we've been making in the letter. But we might be able to say just a little bit more. Again, if we were right about the primary context of this letter, a disagreement in the Jewish population about whether Jesus is the Christ or not, then most of the letter has been addressing that particular concern. At least that's how we've been reading it up to this point. At the same time, though, this will be a group of congregations who live in a world where normal pagan worship, the worship of Greek and Roman gods and goddesses, is all around them. They can't leave their homes and go fetch water without coming face to face with it at every corner. There's always this temptation to give in to those pressures as well. So John reaches the end of the letter. He's been talking about this internal disagreement head on, but he said an awful lot about the work of God in Jesus Christ, and where the love of God ought to get us. Now, just for the record, he adds, hey, unless it isn't perfectly clear, any interaction with idolatry also runs completely counter to everything I just said. All right, we've just wrapped up a series on a letter that is best known for the quotable snippets such as, God is love, perfect love casts out fear, and greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. It's fantastic, hopeful, positive stuff. And John and I have just spent four episodes emphasizing just how shocking and demanding the letter is. I said at the beginning, the author is spitting mad. And maybe we are too, John, just because of how we've seen it handled. Yeah, Ron, what bothers me most is the deliberate mishandling of this letter by those who want to talk about love, but who don't want to talk about what God's love requires of us. Okay. There are those who latch on to God as love, but then go on to articulate a very deformed kind of love. And I want to point out, Ron, the Bible says that God is a lot of things. Okay. <laughs> One of my favorites in the Old Testament is God is a consuming fire. <laughs> that, that's the, a complicating factor, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the author of this letter is very clearly working in the larger context of Scripture, and he very clearly draws on everything that's been revealed about God there, from God's work with the nation of Israel all the way to God's work in Jesus Christ. Right. It's not just a single, narrow, detached statement about God. In that context, we absolutely do not understand what John means by God is love unless we read it in that larger context of Scripture. Well, with all that said, and with all our own concerns about how this letter has been misinterpreted, aired, (laughs) there absolutely is a positive message about love in this letter. John's point is that God is at work in this world God created, and from John's perspective, that work was most recently expressed in Jesus Christ. This is the ultimate expression of God's love. When we recognize that, when we acknowledge what God has done, we can respond in love as well and express that both in love for God and love for those around us. In other words, if we get it right about what God is doing, then what we believe translates itself into doing the right things as well. Yes, we live in a world that is effectively enemy territory for those who have sided with God. Far more than we would like, it is in fact 
us versus them, a situation where we feel like we're holding up tiny, fragile lights in a world of engulfing darkness. But <laughs> this is one of John's most important points. It's the good but, if you will. <laughs> we have eternal life. That eternal life is something we look forward to in the future, but it is also something we experience right now. It is the reward of knowing God's love and ultimately seeing that love expressed through us as well. And there, we've got to leave it. <laughs> Indeed, we must. In the next episode, we begin a new series. And Ron, we've decided to tackle something fairly big, haven't we? Yes, we have. We're going to return to our original opening series of the podcast. It's where Orthodox.Faith was born. For those who haven't heard it, it was a nine-episode introduction to basic Christian theology. That series followed a slightly different format. We each presented our own short solo introduction to the topic of the episode, and then we got together to discuss it. Right, and I think, John, you and I agreed it would be worthwhile to come back to this for a couple of reasons. One is that we'd just like to revisit the topics, but the other is that we think we can do it better now. <laughs> we'll tighten up the discussions <laughs> a little bit, perhaps shorten the episodes a bit. Yeah, those episodes did tend to be longer, and frankly, we've gotten better with the mechanics too. Yeah. We conduct the discussions better and edit the results better and our audio quality is better. So in any case, we see that series as one of the most important statements about who we are and what we represent. As we near the end of our third year doing this, we just want to check back in and work our way through that material again and do it well. So that's where we're going to pick up in the next episode. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please see our website at orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. Thank you for listening. <laughs>